from Chicago, Illinois. I'm Charles Lee. And I'm Emma Wyatt. And you're listening to the Grox Science Show. Coming up on today's program, we'll be joined by Seth Manukin, author of The Panic Virus, a true story of medicine, science, and fear. So you want to stay tuned for all that, plus the uh, Grokatron 5000. It's coming right up here on the Grox Science Show. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. by an experienced journalist and author of three books, the latest of which is going to be the subject of our discussion today. Author Seth Manukin is here. He joins us from his home, Brooklyn, um, but he'll actually be coming to Chicago this weekend for sort of a whirlwind of appearances. Notably, he'll be the guest of honor at the Museum of Science and Industry as part of their Inventive Genius Lecture. And he'll also be speaking at Northwestern's Medill School of Journalism and appearing at the Science Cafe event downtown at the Affinia Hotel on Friday night at 6 o'clock. It's a public event, so you want to head to it. Doors open at 5 o'clock. Seth, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, Yeah, thank you for having me. Well, yeah, we're delighted to have you. So you're here to talk to us a little bit about... Well, vaccinations <laughs> and, and a, a problem or, or potential crisis that's developing in this country, but not solely this country from what I gather. So if you could tell us a little bit first about what aspects of people not vaccinating their children motivated you enough to make you sort of run headlong into this two-year project that you took on? Um, well, actually, when I started it, it, it wasn't because uh, I was concerned about vaccine uptake rates um, or because it, it, it was even uh, an issue that had previously been on my radar. I, I began thinking about it and investigating it because of a series of conversations um, I had had with friends who were either uh, expectant parents or parents of young children. And what struck me in those conversations was, one, this was an issue that that kept coming up. Um, And as I said, it it had not been something that I had been particularly aware of as this type of of issue of uh, constant concern. And the the other thing was the way that um, the language in which it was often discussed was language of emotion. Um, I feel that children are receiving too many vaccines too soon, or uh, my gut tells me that all of these preservatives can't be healthy. Um, and again, I, I actually didn't know whether whether that viewpoint was correct or not, but I did know that these were people whom generally, when discussing other 
issues that where there was an, a sort of intersection of science and, and uh, public policy, such mm-hmm. as envir- the environment and, and um, evolution, uh, they would be very disdainful of that attitude in other people. Um, in other words, you know, if someone said, well, I just don't feel like global warming is a reality because we had four feet of snow last year, um, <laughs> this, this group of friends would, would, you know, label that as being ridiculous, and I, I actually agree with them. Um, and so I was curious as to why this seemed to be a topic about which there was uh, uh, such a different approach towards, towards dealing with. Sure. Fair enough. So I, I wanted to delve into talking about the book specifically at the beginning. You start out sort of using as a springboard for addressing modern day fears about vaccines with the polio vaccine. And so I just wanted right. to, to ask you why that was sort of a logical starting point for you. Well, I, I guess for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, I think it was really the point at which um, the the American public had to or did focus on this issue, the, the issue of disease eradication and um, uh, vaccines and vaccine safety uh, in a way that hadn't been before. At, at the time that Salk was doing the polio vaccine trials um, and then the vaccine was implemented, it, it was a period during which scientists were held in extremely high esteem. Uh, there was a poll taken that year and more people knew the year of, of the, the Salk vaccine trials and more people knew um, about the trials than knew the president's full name. So uh, I think there was a very different attitude um, toward, towards towards public health then than there was now. Um, but the, the reason I guess I, I focused on that as a as the starting point for a narrative uh, that looked a lot at vaccine safety and public perception of vaccine safety is because um, that was probably the instance in which there was the worst vaccine safety-related disaster um, uh, in the country's history and and one of the worst vaccine safety-related disasters ever. And that was when um, immediately after the polio vaccine was licensed for use, uh, one of the four pharmaceutical companies that that had been cleared um, to produce the vaccine actually released a a contaminated batch um, and as a result children were paralyzed, not many, uh, but children were paralyzed and, and some several children actually died. Um, so I think that, and, and I thought that and felt that, there was no way to write about um, issues of vaccines and vaccine safety and have any real legitimacy if I didn't discuss and and try and dive into uh, uh, and and figure out what what happened there and what lessons could be learned if I didn't if I didn't try to address really some of the darkest chapters um, in the history of, of vaccines and public policy so uh, that, that was the reason why I felt like it was so important to to include not only the the polio vaccine but um, some of the really really negative repercussions of, of that effort sure and it seemed to be one of the more rational places um, where where fear actually had 
you know, it was rooted in, in something that actually did happen and was the fault of government, pharmaceutical industry, lack of maybe shared information and a bit of overconfidence on the part of the pharmaceutical industry, perhaps, but um, definitely lack of oversight. Um, as you go through, though, and outline the progression of distrust um, as it developed in terms of immunizations in this country, you seem to move from talking about the role of government and pharmaceutical industry and into a discussion of these other players that became involved that seem to have more malevolent goals, if you will, or um, intentions for deceit. And I'm, I'm thinking primarily of some of the medical, some of the doctors that became involved in the anti-vaccine movement. Can you talk a little bit about their role, and particularly Andrew Wakefield's role? Um, sure. Um, I'm, I actually don't, I'm not sure I entirely agree um, about their malevolence. Okay. Or I guess rather, uh, um, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure I don't agree. Um, <laughs> okay. I, I'm not sure I agree. And, sure, and that's fine. Because I, I have a hard time trying to figure out people's motivation. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, Andrew Andrew Wakefield is the doctor um, who, in 1998, uh, was the lead author on a study that appeared in The Lancet. That was really the first time um, that vaccines had been linked to autism in, in any very public way. And specifically, what what he was doing was linking the measles component of the MMR vaccine right. um, to to autism and positing this potential causal. Uh, link, um, and uh, he based that on a 12-person on a case study, which, which is anyone who's involved in science and medicine knows you can't, you, you, you can't draw really any conclusions um, from a 12-person case study. All you can really do is, is say, well, this is an area that possibly should get more interest in and more examination and do some epidemiological studies. And um, I, I think some of the concerns, there were concerns about Wakefield even at the time in 1998. He, he already had a reputation for overreaching um, uh, in, in, in terms of the conclusions that he drew uh, and the data that he had to support that. Um, and in the years since then, certainly we've learned a lot more about um, uh, what appear to be very serious ethical lapses as well. He was he had a, a financial relationship with a, a law firm that was working with parents um, in the UK exploring vaccine-related lawsuits uh, uh, involving potential injuries to their children. Um, he had taken out a patent for an alternative measles vaccine uh, uh, several months before he, he published this paper. And then the, the, the latest accusations, which were just published uh, in January in the British Medical Journal, were that he actually engaged in, in wholesale fraud, right. um, that he altered some of, the, some of the patient records of the 12 <laughs> children that were in his study. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, obviously he was really 
the first person who in a very public way linked vaccines with, with autism, and I think that autism has been by far the overwhelming, um, the source of the most anxiety uh, related to potential vaccine injuries. Um, but I think what's, what's interesting is that, and, and this was something that I think I might not have um, really understood if I hadn't gone about the, the book in the way I did, which is that because I didn't know what side um, uh, was right, mm -hmm. um, I was able to spend a lot of time with some of the main actors on, on both sides of this. And um, there's obviously a huge amount of distrust between the community of people that feel that vaccines are injurious in this way and that their children were vaccine injured and the, the medical and scientific and public health community. And uh, I very clearly ended up siding with the medical and scientific and public health community. Um, but but by spending, by, by doing this sort of, I guess, kind of shoe leather reporting, um, I, I was able to really get a very intimate sense and, and, and I think have a different type of understanding than I would have otherwise of the fact that the vast, vast majority involved in what I ended up labeling the anti-vaccine movement, um, and that's a controversial label in and yeah. of itself, but the vast majority of people are actually coming to it from very, very pure places. Right. Um, most of them are parents who you know, believe very, you know, very honestly that their yes. children were harmed and uh, believe that they're trying to um, protect other children and, and, and do what they can to help, to help their children. And Absolutely. Um, in some ways, that sort of relates to the, I guess, the, the meta theme of my book, which is how do we decide what counts as truth? Um, mm -hmm. You know, and, and how do we go about convincing ourselves that our emotional reactions are, in fact, uh, rational reactions? Well, yeah, and that's, uh, you mentioned something that I definitely wanted to get out there, and that's that you in no way placed any... I, I hate to call it blame, but for lack of a better term, blame on, on parents for, for following, for believing that vaccines were indeed causing some of these disorders. It, in fact, it seemed to me like out of all the entities that you mentioned, um, you blamed perhaps, and, and you can tell me if this is wrong, but to me, the reader, it seemed like you were blaming the press more than anyone else. Is... As a journalist, I was I wasn't expecting you to um, to come down against them, but you lay a case out that's pretty clear. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, um, I would. I, I think I agree with you that that is probably where I ended up feeling like the the most uh, the the group that deserved the most blame was was our peers. And you know, I've had a lot of conversations with um, scientists and and with doctors, and it's sort of interesting because um, uh, oftentimes I end up arguing that you know that my industry deserves more blame, and they end up arguing that theirs deserves <laughs> more blame. There's there's a lot of uh, uh, there continues to be a lot of frustration and, and anger with the Lancet for running this piece in the first place. But um, it, my feeling is that uh, the only reason that this story got off the ground in the first place 
was because of, of really, really irresponsible press coverage that only got more irresponsible as the years went on and, and as more evidence came in. Um, and and as, a, as a sort of brief um, example of what I mean, uh, that 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 initial um, Lancet paper, the paper itself, actually was fairly cautious about saying that these were not um, uh, conclusions, and and there was no they there, there wasn't even any pathway that they had identified um, uh, through which this could be happening. Um, what really set off the, the hysteria that followed was a press conference that Wakefield had where he went much, much, much further than the paper had and, in fact, in that press conference recommended uh, that parents no longer give their children the 3-in-1 measles, mumps, rubella vaccine. Um, so, you know, I, obviously that's a very controversial thing um, and and uh, I guess the, the reaction on the part of the media that had been invited was somewhat to be expected, which is, you know, the next day and throughout the, the U.K. press, um, there were stories along the lines of prominent researcher um, recommends parents don't give their children the, the MMR vaccine. You know, other researchers disagree, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And um, I talked to some of those reporters, and, and what they said as a reason that they ran those stories um, and presented it in this sort of on the one hand, on the other hand paradigm that I find very troubling yeah. in a lot of cases, um, is that they didn't have the time to really investigate this fully uh, in the course of a day uh, on deadline. And I understand that, and I agree with that. Obviously, there's, there's no way they could have. I, I think that anyone covering science and medicine should have a basic enough understanding uh, to realize that you could never draw a any sort of conclusion um, on a 12-person case study, which is what this was, and it's what it you know it's what it was before we knew all of these other problems with it related to conflicts of interest and 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 possible falsified data. Um, so. Uh, I think a legitimate story uh, in, in, in the days following that would have been why is this, why is a researcher making these recommendations based on a sample size that anyone who has had any experience in science would know is not the type of thing where you can draw a population-based uh, uh, study on. Um, right. when, I'm, when, I, when this comes up in talks that I'm giving, um, oftentimes, you know, I'll, I'll count off the first 12 people in the front row or whatever and point out that if there happen to be eight men and four women uh, drawing conclusions from a 12-person case study, the equivalent of that here would be saying that 75% um, uh, or what would that be, 66% of the uh, uh, of the population, 66 or 75, what would that be? 66%, <laughs> yeah, I think so. Of the You're population right. would be male, right. um, uh, which obviously would be a ridiculous thing to say. It just mm -hmm. means that out of this tiny group of people, you know, eight men, Men happen to sit down first. So, um, uh, and and I, I think if I was to identify a moment of original sin, as it were, in this mm. story, that's what that's what I would point to. The the um, going forward, 
I think there was a whole series of different problems, which is after the evidence really became clear and, and after follow-up studies were done and really left no doubt that this theory had no credence, um, still this was presented as uh, this sort of on the one hand, on the other hand issue. Right. Um, and I, I think that's totally irresponsible. And I, I think it's totally irresponsible not just involving this. I think it's totally irresponsible for the press to, to report on the birther movement uh, using that same language. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, these people believe that Obama wasn't born in mm -hmm. the United States. Well, that is absolutely ridiculous. You know, I mean, I can believe that the moon is made out of Swiss cheese, but that doesn't mean that, that the press should write a story about it the next day. And I think that that was used as an excuse to um, present, very, you know, controversial accusations um, and to, to present what clearly are very moving personal narratives um, uh, of, of parents who believe their, their children have been have been injured um, and it's not it's 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 not very compelling to, to, to write a story about how uh, you know this kid got a vaccine and nothing happened <laughs> exactly just a couple more things the first I hate to give Jenny McCarthy any more press than she already gets so let's just say her name uh, as few times as possible <laughs> Oh, okay. Yes. Um, so there's a chapter in your book devoted to describing her emergence as a spokesperson. She advocates for the, the potential link between autism and vaccines and, and general toxins in the environment. But why, in your mind, did she become such a credible figure for this movement? And why do people place more stock in her than their pediatricians? Well, um... It's, it's a great question, and I think that uh, it's something that obviously has, has caused public health officials and and the medical community no amount of consternation, which sure. is, you know, I think the language that you hear a lot is why are people listening to, uh, you know, this former Playboy bunny and, mm -hmm. and not to their doctors. And and I think in some ways that's that's both not real, that's not fair to Jenny McCarthy. Um, also uh, sort of gets to why there is this fundamental misunderstanding about what is going on on the part of the medical community. Mm -hmm. I mean, people aren't listening to Jenny McCarthy because she is a former Playboy bunny. They're listening to her because she is incredibly articulate yeah. um, and forthright uh, and speaks very candidly uh, and very movingly about her experiences with her son. Um, and, and I think that that is what people relate to. I mean, mm -hmm. if you look at the audience of, of Oprah Winfrey, um, which is a place where she got an enormous amount of attention and, mm -hmm. and uh, it was clearly an audience that, that related to her a lot, you know, we're not talking about an audience of, of, of pubescent boys, um, yeah. uh, thinking back to the days that, that <laughs> she was uh, on a dating show sure. or, uh, or, or, or she was in Playboy. Um, so uh, I, I think the, the, the medical community and the public health community has um, kind of missed the boat a little bit in, in, in 
addressing and, and understanding uh, what it is that's going on, and in fact, it contributed to there being a slower reaction than there, there probably should have been. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think the reason that, that people have listened to, to uh, or the reason that Jenny McCarthy's message has had such resonance is because she's been given repeated outlets in some of the biggest uh, platforms, you know, Oprah Winfrey, People Magazine, mm-hmm. The Morning Shows, um, and because uh, she has a personal narrative, um, and that is much easier to understand than what can be tricky science, especially when explained by scientists who don't have a lot of experience communicating with with, with the public. Well, and it's tough because I think for any scientific issue, if you get a scientist and a spokesperson, a celebrity spokesperson together, I mean, the audience, we're not as, as a psychologist, I know well enough that people are not rational beings, right? We're driven by our emotions. And so you have a scientist up there who's supposed to speak rationally and not get passionate and worked up, pitted against someone who is appealing to your gut. So it's almost, what does the scientist do? <laughs> I mean, how, how do we, att- right. I think we've got a PR problem that we've got to f- try and fix. Well, and I, I think part of it is that um, there was a, I don't know if, a, if it's a, a misunderstanding or just um, a, a sort of lack of acknowledgement uh, about the very thing that, that you just said, which is that people tend to make decisions um, based on their gut. And that includes me. I mean, that includes sure. everyone. Um, uh and uh, so, so, so using the language sort of of pure reason doesn't really cut it, um, especially when the language of, of pure reason is being spoken by people who uh, are trained to um, be as cautious as possible in public pronouncements. Right. Um, I've read uh, I've read a lot of comments about your book online. <laughs> And that's uh, yeah. that's that's one thing that people are heralding for is is being able to speak up about the science in a way that catches people's interest and and speaks to their emotions. So um, this was a fantastic book. Thank you for being our guest today. Just want to highlight it again. This is Seth Manukin who's been speaking with us today about uh, his new book, The Panic Virus: A True Story of Medicine, Science, and Fear. So we usually like to play a game with our guests uh, uh, that we call the Grokatron 5000. You willing to stick around for that? Uh, sure. You up for it? Okay, great. How, how could I resist the Grokatron 5000? <laughs> Few people can. <laughs> All right, cool. All right, so uh, it is our game called the Grokatron 5000. It's our supercomputer formerly known as Deep Blue. And uh, today the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic uh, for the following five uh, items, topics. Uh, will they go viral? Or if they're dead in the water, and uh, maybe a little reason why. Uh, Mr. Manukin, are you ready to play the game? All right. So, uh, first option. So, you get it? You you got Uh, it? I I think so. (laughs) All right. Yeah, we want your predictions now. Uh, First on um, Sarah Palin's 2012 run for the presidency. Going viral Uh, or dead in the water? Um, uh, Going viral meaning is it going to get off the ground? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Um, I would say, uh, uh, <laughs> I guess I would equivocate. <laughs> I would say it'll go viral in the in the media, but mm. it is uh, dead in the water in terms of how far she actually Any success. Will get. <laughs> all right, all right. That's fair. Um, all right, the second one here, actually reforming our, our health care industry here in the U.S. Uh, well, it depends on how, how, how do you how do you it depends on how you define <laughs> how you define. It. I think that the uh, the, the way healthcare um, is 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 practiced uh, in the U.S. in the next couple of years will be uh, different in a way that's probably unsatisfying to everyone. Not perfect. <laughs> will be different. <laughs> okay, all right, cool. Um, so so we'll say go viral on that one. Um, all right, third one. Sorry to be so serious on these, but um, democracy in the Middle East and uh, North Africa. Um, democracy as opposed to, like, uh, right now, mm, say, our movements. Yeah, well, I say, uh, yeah, well, uh, leave it at democracy. That, I think that political, <laughs> political change will continue okay. to go viral. Okay, good. Um, yeah. I, I, I'm not sure that I would say that the, uh, the, the, the end result being democracy, I'm not sure if that would end up be going Sure, or democracy as we change. define it. <laughs> sure, okay, good. Okay, number four, high-speed rail in the U.S. Um, and what time frame are we... <laughs> <laughs> Well, okay, let's not let's not stick to the time frame that President Obama has given us. It seems a little unrealistic. Um, I think it is um, sadly not going to go viral. Okay, mm. boo. All right, <laughs> and finally, um, the uh, the popularity of UK's monarchy following the upcoming nuptials of Prince William and Kate Middleton. <laughs> Uh, like definitely viral. Yeah, awesome. All right. <laughs> well, thanks so much for your time again. It was a pleasure speaking to you. And um, have yeah, fun in Chicago yeah, this weekend. That was Seth Manukin joining us, um, speaking about his recent book, The Panic Virus, A True Story of Medicine, Science, and Fear. All right. Well, this has been the uh, Grok Science Show. Uh, I've been your host, Charles Lee. And I'm Emma Wyatt. And we'll be back in two weeks with more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us, you can do so emailing us at science at grox.net. We're also on the web, www.grox.net. And we're on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you.